My name is my name is my name is my name is Anwar on Anwar on Anwar 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 Dr. Anwar Osborne Dr. Matthew Wheatley This is Pomscast Good morning podcast listeners this is Matt Wheatley Hey my name is Anwar Osborne and I'm excited to be here yeah, so am I. We're it's. I think we took a little bit of a break. I think at the end of uh, summer, so we're trying to get back into it. September first. Um, so, a couple items of business. I think before we get to the main program. I, I think the first thing we got to mention is um, uh, DJ Serengeti Yeti gave us some new intro music. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. I, I like the beats we had earlier. Nothing against that, that was your buddy, right? Yeah, that was my buddy from college. But uh, Sarah Gettietti, he's a, a DJ and a great drummer. So. That is true. <laughs> also uh, an ultrasound faculty member right. at, uh, at Great. So, you know, multi-talented. It's a big deal. So in a couple weeks, we got the OBS conference coming up, right? Yeah, that's uh, actually two weeks. It'll be uh, two weeks from today. It'll be the second day. So it's September 14th, 15th in Nashville. Uh, I think there's still spots available. Still spots available. I um, have got to get on the reservation of my room. I missed the block. Full disclosure, it's my fault. Airbnb, <laughs> Nashville. <laughs> I think I'm gonna find. The, I'm gonna get a room, but oh god, man, I gotta do it today. I gotta handle yeah. it today. So. Uh, yeah, it's it's gonna be another great conference. We got a number of great speakers, and it's uh, it's gonna be a good time. So we hope to see folks there. Uh, obviously, if there's any questions, hit us up on the uh, show email and uh, we'll, we'll answer them. That's right. That's uh, pobservation at gmail.com. That's observation except with a P. At the beginning, pobs, yeah. P-O-B-S. And uh, just send us an email, say something nice, review us on one of the podcast platforms. That would be awesome also. Uh, today we got a great show. Uh, we'll um, get right into it after this break here, but we're going to talk about the uh, new things that Matt has going on in his observation unit over at uh, Grady, the uh, things that I got going on over at the hospitalist observation unit over at Emory Hospital Midtown, uh, and we're going to talk briefly about uh, some more recent changes in the OPPS uh, the outpatient pr- perspective payment system for hospitals. And then uh, we got a big time special guest today. Yeah, so. so we're excited about it. We'll get into it after these messages. Hey, how are you doing? Uh, this is Matt Wheatley. And this is Onwar again. And we want you to come out to see us in September. Uh, this year for the Observation Medicine Science and Solutions Conference. Are you the director of an observation unit that just started? Or have you had an observation unit that you're looking to grow? Uh, Do you have billing or coding questions? Well, all that stuff's going to be answered at the conference this year. Right. We're going to be talking about the newest and latest protocols. We're going to have the leaders and the people who publish the papers there, unlike a lot of observation conferences. And we're going to be at the Doubletree downtown in Nashville, one of my favorite places to go. Yeah, uh, we had the conference there two years ago, and uh, it rained the first night, but uh, we still had a great time, had a great attendance. Um, So we're back there by popular demand. Right, so September 14th and 15th, 2017, Nashville, Tennessee, the Doubletree Hilton 
uh, Nashville downtown and it is put on by the Michigan College of Emergency Physicians. You can go to mset.org for more information or you could go to obsprotocols.org and click the link there. So hopefully we see you then. All right. Dr. Wheatley, so you got this big 20-bed observation unit at Grady Memorial Hospital that's ED OBS, uh, extremely high uh, patient volumes in the emergency department. You guys occasionally have to house patients over there, but you guys still manage to innovate, which is um, amazing to me. Now, uh, what is one of the more recent things you guys started to do as far as pathways are concerned? We have a couple new things we've started. One is a VTE pathway. Uh, and honestly, we're, I think, a little behind the curve in this. I know that there's plenty of other uh, groups out there who have been using their observation unit for low-risk PEs and DVTs. Uh, and I think there was actually a study published recently which looked into uh, short-stay admissions for these folks. Um, so. I don't want to take any credit as being an innovator in this uh, realm, but this is our kind of uh, foray into this area. A lot of it has come from the new oral anticoagulants, which the loading dose is essentially your first dose, so you're you're anticoagulated as soon as the pill goes down the gullet. Um, you know, I'm not saying Dr. Osborne and I are old, but you know when we when we got into the game. Uh, you know, you got somebody with a DVT or a PE, you start them on heparin drip, uh, you know, and kind of wash your hands, move it right, on to the next patient. Right. Everyone got admitted. Uh, and now I think you're realizing that uh, treatment is a lot simpler. Um, and also, I think there's this realization that low-risk PEs or that there is a low-risk PE group that does not necessarily benefit from inpatient admission. Um, so the majority of our uh, VTE protocol is for folks to basically see our pharmacists get their first 30 days of medication uh, covered because we have a lot of uninsured slash self-pay patients. And so uh, getting the first 30 days of their medication covered uh, through the drug manufacturers is important and then making sure they get appropriate follow-up. Um, that's really the majority of what we're doing. There are some diagnostics that can be done uh, so they're not, they're not mandatory or they're not, they're not auto-selected per se? No, they're not mandatory. We had talked with cardiology and our uh, anticoagulation VTE folks about it. Do they want everybody with a PE to get a to get an echo? And really it's based on clinical gestalt. If it's a small PE and there's no signs of right heart strain on the CT, the, I mean, those are actually exclusion criteria anybody with signs of right heart strain and ct mm -hmm. really should be admitted um but if there's no if you're not thinking that the echo is going to add anything clinically then don't get it occasionally if you have somebody and you think it's maybe an incidental finding or it's a questionable pe you could do lower extremity dopplers just to see if there's a yeah you know when that kept coming up in the obs units that we were managing at Emory Midtown, you know, the issue was, is I was like, I don't think it's going to be a lot of people. And I don't know if we're going to be adding a whole lot of things. I do think there's probably benefit for them being on the monitor. 
Um, and I do think, and I, yeah, I think you mentioned this, is making sure that they can get a DOAC or a NOAC or whatever you want right. to call it. Yeah, whatever they're, some sort of ACK. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, and I think that that right there has its own value, particularly in the Grady population, where a lot of those folks don't have the kind of coverage that you would think. So, and also, you know, when we got into the game, like there was no Lovenox. Right. My, my first PE patient did not. The night got put on heparin drip. Well, and when Lovenox came out, there was this: uh, if you were well insured, mm -hmm. uh, you could get Lovenox. But then there was also the step of the patient and/or their family had to be willing to give themselves a shot in the right. stomach twice a day. And you would find some patients that would be uncomfortable with that, and so right. sometimes they would get admitted for Lovenox teaching, or sometimes they would get admitted just on unfractionated heparin right, and bridge to coumadin. And then, um, and, you know, Lovenox was the only drug available. Like, there's more than one DOAC. So, like, there's some price competition. Those things are much more reasonable right. than uh, than Lovenox. So, um, I think there's a lot of opportunity there, particularly in this right population. And, you know, I, you, you sell it short. I, I don't, I'm not so sure there's a lot of places that are doing a VTE pathway without like a big study or funding or something like that. I think that that's going to be the new thing. Yeah. And uh, I, I know we talked to one of the SAEM interest groups, I think it was two years ago, uh, about trying to do a combined study. So, you know, I think combining data from a lot of these sites that are doing ED observation or even, you know, second level complex observation of these patients as opposed to traditional admission uh, just for outcomes I think would be powerful um, so yeah so th that's one thing we're doing uh, we're also looking at a uh, buprenorphine uh, with our tox group they want to do like a they want to do like an opioid uh, kind of detox thing um, that's in the works right now so wow I want to hear more about that the, I mean that's going to be interesting there's, yeah. a, there's a lot of money out uh to fund these kinds of programs coming up so yeah uh, at midtown we got one main thing going on the, the the main thing for me personally is that i'm actually retiring from the observation unit uh, medical director role at midtown uh, a lot of reasons for that uh, one i was going to try to spend some more time with um, education in the world of obs the other is there's a lot of factors and a lot of uh, different things that, that go into making an, a hospitalist-run observation unit work. One of these days, I'm going to sit down and kind of put all my thoughts on paper about how I, I think from an operations standpoint, they have to function differently. But uh, that said, the push from the hospital now is probably going to be trying to combine observation units to make them a little bit larger uh, and uh, maybe do some more complex things, but have it run by the emergency department, which is great. Uh, but I personally need to probably spend some more time doing uh, some OBS teaching, getting deeper into that space. So uh, I think that one, I think Mike is going to run that one between him and the hospitalist. But the last project we're doing is uh, what's called the dialysis fast track. And uh, you know, when we get to talking to folks across the country, people do dialysis like 20 different ways, I guess. Yeah, they, it's kind of like psych obs. It's like every place is uh, kind of their own. Kinda, yeah, carve their own. 
And so we were going to try to unite these three things with OBS being a piece of that uh, from the complex OBS standpoint. And what was going to happen is going to be there was going to be some rapid blood tests drawn, uh, almost in triage, uh, preferably an ISTAT, uh, VBG, something along those lines. Uh, determine if they need interventional dialysis and in order to facilitate their actual disposition we're going to reserve them an OBS unit bed uh, however try to send them to the dialysis unit right from the triage area after we figure out what they need and with that in mind hopefully the patients will initially go to the observation uh, sorry, we'll initially go to the dialysis unit and then go to the observation unit uh, as opposed to going to the OBS unit first, waiting on dialysis. There's a lot of operational background stuff we got to do. Apparently, the big thing that's a holdup is getting dialysis orders from the, I think it's the, it's the fellow. The, the fellow for nephrology has to write orders in the computer in order for the patient to actually get into the observation or to the dialysis unit. So we had to work out a lot of that in the background, and uh, the goals would be decreasing the length of stay for these patients. Um, now, uh, the billing for all of that from a facility standpoint uh, is going to be tough uh, to totally work out, but I think what we're going to hope to see is uh, more overall OBS patients, um, and uh, on the back end, we're going to have to figure out the appropriate billing for these interventional dialysis patients. It seems like the main advantage to that is just is in the streamlining of the process that a as a emergency provider you're not stuck reinventing the wheel every time when a patient comes in for kind of intermittent dialysis uh, even if you're not able to totally sort out the billing and I know at Grady we have uh, just an issue with that there is basically no funding source that will pay for patients coming in mm -hmm. um, you at least are cutting your losses a little more in not having them hang out in the ed for a long time and and really from a patient standpoint that that should be the most important thing i mean really what they need is dialysis getting them to the unit mm -hmm. um is what they really need and they need to get out and get back on with their lives exactly because so. it's a huge it's a huge issue for them um, but, uh, I, I think being able to streamline that process will make it better for the patients and then better for the EPs. And then the, the financial part of it, uh, you know, not really that it's going to take care of itself, but you know, that's, as you said, kind of a secondary, right. secondary thing. Um, so yeah, I'll be interested to see what that, what that I'm interested like. in, I'm, I still work at Emory now. Let's not get carried away. <laughs> I'll, I'll be in the know and I'll be sure to give, uh, our listeners an update. Speaking right. of billing though, uh, a minor ish policy change happened and, uh, that was with release of next year's, uh, OPPS. So the 2018 OPPS. So, uh, we had Mike on I think six or seven months ago where he talked about the comprehensive uh, OPPS or the comp comprehensive APC and uh, so, so basically back up real quick sorry this is uh, this is facility payment stuff right. fr from CMS so this is not professional fee billing um, exactly so. and so basically again like you say the, the APC before uh, or the the uh, ambulatory payment 
model was something that the facility would bill bill for and they would receive and then there would be procedures and things like that outside of that um, the patients uh, would be responsible for and so what happened in 2016 is that uh, Medicare made it a comprehensive APC so it's like a mini DRG right for the facility that includes a ton of uh, procedures and so it still stands that uh, there's a, a several things that are not part of the APC that uh, patients are going to be responsible for and like the big one is obviously the self-administered right. drugs right uh, the other things that you know we wouldn't do anyway but just as you know are not covered like the, the T status procedures uh, that's a bunch of stuff that we had talked about before like like an EGD that would be a T status procedure so that's not part of it uh, but preventative screens physical therapy those sorts of things are not covered in this and uh, suffice it to say though if you do the pure OBS thing if you do a pure OBS syncope where somebody comes in you say oh you know the patient needs to be on the monitor and they get a blood test and they get an echo all of that's covered and the margin on that, like how much the cost of those services versus how much you get reimbursed is actually pretty favorable. So uh, that said. So the big change is just the reimbursement it has increased? It increased just to like $400. So yeah. that it's still a... Uh, it's still a comprehensive APC. They could have changed things. Like we've made uh, several recommendations that self-administered drugs be uh, at least uh, dealt with or incorporated into this sort of thing, but uh, we're not quite there yet. I think New York ASAP put out a uh, recommendation that these self-administered drugs uh, should be uh, uh, billed for similar to if the patient was an inpatient. Uh, we might have a ways to go on that, but you know, the, it didn't get worse. Uh, I think most places, like uh, I think, I think we talked about this before. Either like just don't bill for the self-administered drugs, right. or they just let the patient take whatever they brought with them yeah. and just verify. But I, I think the point to bring out about the APC that um, Mike Granovsky mentions and will mention at the uh, OBS conference here in a couple of weeks, another shameless plug for that, <laughs> uh, is that, so this is a, this is a single lump sum payment. And so the advantage is on hospitals that manage patients more efficiently. Right. So to take your example of a syncope patient that's getting cardiac monitoring, maybe some blood and an echo, mm. Uh, if Hospital A manages that patient in 30 hours and Hospital B manages them in 15 hours, they're both getting the same amount of money. Right. Uh, hospital A, who managed the patient in 30 hours, though, that patient ties up a bed uh, when you can put one, maybe two more patients in that bed at Hospital B. Exactly. Um, and, and then you're getting that APC for one or two more patients. So the, the onus is on the observation unit directors and nursing managers to make sure that the patients are being managed efficiently and effectively. Um, so. so, so yeah, so I think, um, the OPPS as it's now it's, it's what we got. It's not absolutely perfect, but you know, um, I think we're going to keep working from the policy side of yeah. ASAP. So, okay. All right. Now we can, everybody can wake up now. We're done talking about policy. <laughs> uh, we're going <laughs> to, we're going to shift gears a little bit, and we are going to continue with a, an ongoing uh, topic that we talked about here called Who Needs a Stress Test? Right. Um, and today we have a very special guest uh, that 
uh, Dr. Osborne spoke with on the phone, uh, Dr. Simon Mailer from Wake Forest University. He is a clinical professor and uh, emergency medicine physician. Um, he also is a researcher, um, probably, I don't, know, I don't know if he's most famous for, but definitely what I know him most for is the heart pathway. And this was a study that was published in AEM last year uh, which looked at taking the heart score and adding a time element to it uh, with serial troponins um, to further increase the sensitivity for uh, sending home, being able to send home patients from the ED. So uh, we will get to that interview in a second here. Um, just to back up, obviously, we are we are getting into this because there seems to be a, a cognitive dissonance now uh, between what some of the national um, recommendations are from both from ASEP from our professional society and also from things like the American College of Cardiology American Heart Association that recommend non-invasive stress tests for patients who in whom you're concerned about acute coronary syndrome. Uh, their recommendation is that it's done within 72 hours for low-risk patients and done sooner in moderate or high-risk patients. That obviously brings up a lot of issues because, you know, the way that it's stated is these are patients for whom you're concerned about acute coronary syndrome. They don't really mention mm -hmm. how to define that. And obviously providers... Uh, especially in the emergency department where we've been taught, you know, anybody can have a heart attack right. at any time, all the way from the patient presenting with, you know, classic, the med student can make the diagnosis kind of pain to, you know, finger pain. Well, you know, you need, you need to be worried about, uh, you know, this could be some atypical angina. Right. Um, and so that led to people getting put in observation units or admitted in droves to get these stress tests. And now we're starting to see some very, very large retrospective, albeit trials, mm -hmm. looking at outcomes. Um, there was one published in JAMA IM a couple of years ago. That there's one that's I think in press in JAMA IM with a very good editorial written by Ben Sun, um, kind of encapsulating this whole concept of where we're at with stress tests. But basically, these have found that patients that get a stress test, have a positive stress test, go on and be cathed, mm -hmm. they do not have fewer heart attacks than patients who don't get stress test right. or patients who, who... To me, that's the key. I, you know, I, I, in, in, uh, Dr. Mahler mentions this, is that, uh, you know, we're, we're aiming for a goal that uh, we know is not going to end in fewer heart attacks, basically. Right. So, uh, but... There's, a, there's definitely deficits in what exists out there in the literature, right? So is there a randomized trial where some of the people get uh, nothing, or let's, say, let's not say nothing, but no imaging, get put on an aspirin, statin, and a beta blocker rapidly, like within 48 hours, and do they have heart attacks at a different rate than people who get your routine, show up in the ER, stress test, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So. And the step we may need to take first... I mean, the question we need to ask is, who needs a stress test while they're in the ED or mm. you know OBS unit? Like they they don't leave the four walls of the hospital before having a stress test. Versus, who can follow up either with their primary care doctor or a cardiologist to determine 
if a stress test is necessary and then get it done in a reasonable amount of time and what is a reasonable amount of time. So the, the push and pull here is between kind of the emerging literature on outcomes of stress tests and the continued professional society recommendations, which leaves a lot of uh, ED physicians specifically feeling kind of hamstrung that they need to check this box for the patient. And I, and mm -hmm. I, I am no different. I, I, I often feel that, well, you know, this is the next step. And, you know, my cardiologists are not going to want to cath this patient or see that, you know, if you call them with a patient that you're worried about, they'll say, well, just get a stress test. And, you know, in some ways it's a way to make everybody feel better when that stress test is negative and then the patient can walk out the door when we knew it was negative. And the problem we have at Grady is that our prevalence of coronary disease is so low, or at least obstructive coronary disease is so low that we have more false positives than we have true positives. And so most folks end up just getting medical management anyway. So that then the question is, what utility did we really gain out of this other than maybe some risk mollification for ourselves. But so, um, so we're going to get here to the interview with Dr. Mailer. Yeah. The first thing I asked him was, uh, how do they use the heart score and the heart path? We use uh, a, score, uh, a, a heart score of zero to three, or actually a HEAR score of zero to three, and two negative troponins to identify uh, patients that can be discharged from the emergency department without uh, stress testing. So, so what you're left with then is patients, obviously if they have a, you know, an, an elevated troponin, then uh, they're, they're not getting stress testing either, they're ruling in. Then you, you have the, the, the patients that are kind of intermediate risk with a, with a, a, a gear score of, of four or five, and some of those patients um, will staying at stress testing. We actually will sometimes do a shared decision with those patients. Uh, to uh, sometimes arrange uh, follow-up and possible outpatient stress testing with those patients uh, with, the, with the scores of four and five and, and two negative components. Uh, so that's generally our, our approach. Most of those patients uh, that currently with a, with a score of four or five uh, will end up in our observation unit and get an exercise uh, stress echo. Um, patients with known coronary disease or at higher risk uh, those patients won't end up in our observation unit. They'll, they'll end up on, uh, on the hospitalist or in the cardiology service and they'll decide. So, so the question of who needs a stress test is, um, is not really an easy question to answer. Uh, and and uh, I'm not sure that anybody truly knows the answer to that question based on the current literature. Uh, and based on our, uh, the guidelines, which are uh, in my view, really outdated and, and basically tell us that it's reasonable to get stress testing on any patient with uh, even very uh, low risk of uh, chest pain to now uh, people who are interpreting some of the trials, like the COURAGE trial, which has you know, said that uh, uh, there's not a, a big uh, difference in medical management for coronary, uh, stable coronary disease and CI. Uh, they look at those studies and they say, well, if there's no advantage to PCI in these patients, then why am I doing a stress test at all? And so there's now people that are saying we shouldn't be stress testing anyone. And on the other hand, you've got the guidelines that still say we should be stress testing everyone. And uh, I want to get on my soapbox for just one second. Okay. Um, 
I want to uh, answer the question again in terms of uh, just who doesn't need a stress test. <laughs> okay. Um, because uh, I think it's really important to, to you know, the, the question of who does need a stress test is harder to answer, but I think the answer, the answer we, we now know who doesn't need a stress test. And in these patients that are really low risk, so we're talking about we do our heart score and they're a zero a one, a two, uh, probably even a three, that they're so low risk, they have uh, less than 1% risk of having an adverse cardiac event at 30 days. Uh, if we do a stress test on that patient and it's a positive, it's much more likely it's going to be a false positive than a true positive. And so we're not doing those patients any favors by stress testing them. And uh, what ends up happening to those patients when they have a positive stress test is that they end up going on to cap. So you've spent all these resources and, and it's subjected this patient to an invasive test, uh, which uh, you know almost always ends up being uh, a normal cat. And you know cats are, are fairly low risk, but there are complications that happen. Obviously, there's a dilode, there's radiation exposure, and there's all the costs that's associated with it. So we're not doing patients any favors when we take a low risk patient and we stress them. So I think that uh, those are patients that we uh, should not be doing uh, routine stress testing. You know, even some of these heart score three or four patients, three, four, five, where you're, you may think, well, you know, they had a stress test recently, so I don't want another stress test. Maybe, maybe what you do is you put them in the OBS unit, repeat the troponin, get a cardiology consult, determine, a, you know, and then use some shared decision-making with the patient to determine next steps. If they cardiology wants to admit in cath, then they can do it from there. If they say they can go home with aspirin, statin, you know, blood pressure modification, that kind of stuff, uh, th- that may be, that may be a future direction. All right. That's, that's plenty. So, so one of the, f- uh, feedback pieces we got was, uh, we do the whole show and do a bunch of yapping. People want to know what the thing is. So <laughs> that's, yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> so the car Nix, you know who you are. <laughs> oh wait, I wasn't supposed to say that. <laughs> So would the thing to know about VTE, it's happening outside of a study over at Grady. That's cool to know. Uh, and a lot of the things like echo are um, optional in this, and there's more to come as far as what we do next. Uh, the other thing we talked about was... OPPS. Right. The money goes up some. The comprehensive piece is pretty much the same. Uh, if you do things in the OBS world and the OBS unit properly, uh, the margin is beneficial. And finally, we're still continuing the conversation about stress tests in the ED or the OBS unit. Uh, it's it's one of my favorite things to talk about, and maybe mm-hmm. still one of the most frustrating things <laughs> to have to to have to wade through in the in the ED because you know that there's probably a better answer out there. But we welcome all your comments and. Uh, look forward to seeing whoever uh, of you shows up at the OBS conference in a couple weeks. One more bit of uh, housekeeping. ASEP is the last week of October. Right, right, right. Exactly. The nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It is October 29th through November 1st. The observation, the observation section meeting right, is, is Monday. It's uh, Monday, October 30th. I think it's 9.30 in the morning. I think it's 9 to 9.50. Sorry, 9 to 9.50. You're right. You're right. You're right. And um, 
I'll uh, I'll be there. We'll haven't quite come up with an agenda yet. Uh, do we want to spend more time talking about chess paint? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but uh, some of the higher ups are concerned about um, you know what this is going to mean from OBS, even though like us in the, in the trenches have been saying this. I think um, we will be talking about psych and OBS again. Hopefully, my survey will be done. Oh my god. <laughs> it's a lot of work anyway uh, yeah so we'll get that out and uh but we'll talk more about what's going to happen in asap we still got a show after this we might uh maybe we'll have time to record one while we're in uh, nashville but uh okay. hopefully we see you guys in a couple weeks all right and as we always say if you don't have obs you've got a problem my friend all right we'll see you later